Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a lecture from Steve Wilkins called Calvinism and America's Founding, from the series A History of Calvinism in America. Check out the full series featuring lectures from Steve Wilkins and Douglas Wilson, available now on Canon Plus. Thank you. It's great to be up here in warm Idaho. It's really cold at home. I'm so glad to be able to get away from that freeze down there. No, this is great, and I thank you uh, for coming. It's going to be fun, I think, this weekend, and it's always a great time here. And my, uh, my assignment is to talk to you about uh, Calvinism and America's founding. It's uh, not a coincidence that the age of exploration coincides with the Reformation. What men, what men believe determines how they live and how they think. And this has always been the case. It is still the case, of course, today. To focus upon specific historical events, therefore, without looking to the theological presuppositions and beliefs and foundations that provoked those events is to miss the most important lessons that history has to offer. To be ignorant of the theological underpinnings of the past is to have a radically short-sighted and woefully misguided view of the past. This is especially so when we consider the motives which were the driving force behind the exploration of the late 15th and early 16th century. Why would men hazard their lives in the most dangerous journey across an uncharted ocean to unknown regions? What was it that... uh, that uh, Columbus, uh, why was it that when Columbus discovered America in 1492, that that discovery excited the world and provoked an unprecedented era of exploration and colonization? Now, in order to answer those questions, we must understand the relationship between faith and action. The evidence uh, continues to increase, or at least I'm not uh, an expert in this area, but I'm just reading and seeing it, that there are many who think that there's a great deal of evidence that America was discovered many times prior to Columbus. And I understand that there are more and more evidence uh, that might substantiate this fact. There may be evidence, for example, that Celtic missionaries were laboring in Northern California and British Columbia 1,000 years before Christ, they say. That's uh, amazing. And that, at that, at the time of the judges in Israel, the Jews had communicated with New Mexican Indians and left a stone with the Ten Commandments inscribed upon it. One, uh, some have said, uh, at the time of Abraham, some say that traders from Scandinavia were operating in the area around Ontario, Canada, and that Romans may have voyaged to British, to America's Pacific coast in the fifth century A.D. Japanese junks also are said to have run aground on the coast of Oregon in California in the same time period. Buddhist missionaries from China are said to have landed in Mexico during the same season. There may be evidence that Irish monks settled in Iceland and Greenland around the same time and from there explored northern coast, the northern coast of America. Now, whether these claims are accurate uh, or not, it's difficult to tell, but it's certain that the Vikings, for example, did have contact with this continent numerous times between the years 1000 and 1400 A.D. Aside from Leif Erikson's efforts to Christianize Newfoundland, however, little was done about the colonization of North America until the discovery of Columbus. And the question you have to ask is, why is that so? Why was it that only then was there great 
worldwide interest in colonization and exploration uh, at Columbus's time, if in fact this much contact had already been made with this continent. The idea that people believe the world was flat is nonsense. The knowledge of the spherical globe was taught at least 500 years before Christ. Aristosthenes in the second century BC estimated the circumference of the earth to be 21,420 miles, which is approximately 3,500 miles short of its actual circumference, but it's a pretty good estimate. Columbus never had to argue against the flat earth theory. Uh, every school child in the Middle Ages knew the earth to be round. That was not a revelation that Columbus uh, suddenly brought forward. What people didn't know, however, was exactly how big the earth was or what was on the other side. And it, it is true, of course, as uh, Dr. R.J. Rushton has pointed out, that a great deal of the old knowledge that the world had was lost during the season of the Renaissance with the, with the invention of the printing press, interestingly enough. After the printing press was invented, a lot of the old books ceased to be read and uh, the old handwritten books. People always want to be modern, you know, and you, don't, you certainly don't want to be caught dead with a handwritten book when you could have a, a brand new printed book. And as a result, a great deal of the old knowledge was lost. The only... Uh, so you have you have you have this anomaly. The only legitimate answer to the question then of why no one did anything about this continent until after Columbus is that they had no motives uh, sufficient to compel them to take on such a daunting task. But in the years following 1492, such a motivation was present, and it was widespread. There are two basic faiths in the world and throughout the history of the world. There are only two. Uh, the biblical faith, which is God-centered, scripture-based, teaching salvation by grace, and the non-biblical faith, which is man-centered, rejects the authority of the scriptures, and teaches salvation by works. Those are the only two alternatives that men have. Now, of course, the latter, the non-biblical faith, has many cultic expressions. It advertises itself under various names, which have an almost infinite variety of minor differences among themselves, and we must not be fooled by the apparent disharmony among these unbiblical faiths. It's only an appearance. All forms of unbelief, in spite of their trivial differences, are united in their antagonism to biblical theology. Their variety serves Satan very well since it disguises the fact that their common foe is Christianity. But there's ultimately no common ground between biblical faith and unbiblical faith. They are mutually exclusive. The compromise is impossible and conflict is unavoidable. God's purposes are worked out in history through this theological cultural warfare between faith and unbelief. These conflicting faiths underlie all of human actions. The truth is, you see, all men walk by faith. All men are motivated by what they believe, whether it be the Bible or something else. But they are motivated by their faith, and that's why they do what they do. There were thus then these two faiths which moved men to exploration in the latter part of the 15th century. Each of them had salvation as its ultimate goal. Man is always seeking salvation, even unbiblical, uh, even men who are not uh, Christians or believers still seek salvation, and they seek it in their own ways. One, you see, the biblical faith sought salvation by God's grace and the new man. The other, the unbiblical faith, sought salvation through um, 
man's own endeavors and finding a new environment. Uh, the Greeks thought that there was a place you could go that was paradise. Many of the myths of, of the old world were still alive in the 15th century, and some of the explorers sought out some of these myths. Ponce de Leon thought that there was a fountain of youth, or at least he, he tried to find it. That's a part of that old ancient pagan myth that salvation can be found by a new environment through your own efforts. Now, these two faiths then uh, have always been in the world, and they've always been in conflict. Columbus, Cortez, and many, many other explorers rejected this humanistic theology. They believed that salvation came from God through faith in his son. They believed what God said was right and that the contrary was wrong. They believed that unbelief brought destruction and death and that faith in the son of God brought life and peace. They believed that the gospel would bring unspeakable benefits to the mysterious world of the East, which lay in the darkness of cruel infidelity. They believed that Christianity and the culture it produced was inherently better than paganism and the destruction that it leaves in its wake. And by the way, this explains why these men and others like them have been and always will be defamed by the world. They will be denounced and despised by the modern Baalist, uh, because the one unforgivable sin in this modern tolerant age is saying that there is such a thing as sin. The only judgment that will, be, will not be allowed in our day is the biblical or righteous judgment. All opinions are legitimate except those based upon God's word. Columbus is defamed simply because he embraced the Bible. Uh, he was not a perfect man, of course, nor I'm not contending that. And I hope you understand that that the things that I say, I'm speaking, we have to speak when we speak of, of history, we have to speak in broad generalities largely. Even when you speak of an, of an individual man, no man was perfect and every man has his flaws. Columbus certainly had his as he, as he confessed himself. But um, basically, you have a man who was oriented around the Bible's teachings. Though it would not be accurate to say that Columbus and those uh, who were around him were Calvinists, it is true to say that they were part of a long line of pre-Reformation saints who held the biblical teaching, sometimes in spite of the teaching of the church of Rome. So you have this uh, early history uh, where we, we see the Reformation, even men prior to the what, what is commonly viewed as the official beginning of the Reformation in 1517. But you see, the fact that Luther did that in 1517 tells you there was a great deal going on before that. As you, as you know, if you're familiar with the history of Europe at that time, there was a great deal of turmoil, a great deal of study, a great deal of thought being given to what the Bible actually teaches. And there were many men prior to Luther who had taught such things as Luther began to teach publicly and caused such an uproar in 1570. 1570, the time, uh, everything just exploded. But things were going on long before that. And Columbus was one of those men Columbus knew Hebrew, he knew Greek, he studied the Bible in the original languages, and uh, in some ways was quite an amazing, amazingly accurate, given the situation in which he grew up, amazingly accurate theology at various points. Well, with the Reformation and the clarifying of the faith that resulted in the Reformation, the world was seen in an entirely new light. Interest in exploration and inhabiting other parts of the world for the sake of the gospel rose to a new height. And so if the question is asked, why were there more settlers in North America from England than there were from any other European country, the answer has to be found in the effects of the Reformation. In spite of the fact that Spain and France had far larger land holdings 
and that both governments sought settlers vigorously to uh, inhabit their holdings in the New World, neither had much success in finding those who were willing to settle in America. By contrast, the English, who did not get seriously involved in exploration until over 100 years after Columbus' discovery, they would, by the year 1700, have more settlements in America than both Spain and France combined. Now, how could this be? I think the answer to this, what, what appears to be a riddle, really is found in the Reformation. The Reformation brought a whole new view of the world, and England was more affected by the Reformation than either uh, France or Spain. But the whole new view of the world that the Reformation gave could be summarized in, in some statements like these. All creation is to glorify God. Everything is, exists for his glory. All men in all areas of life and society are to glorify God. You exist preeminently to, for the glory of God. So man's life and his calling is to, is to bring all things into conformity to the word of God, to the will of God. That's what the, the idea of reformation is a biblical idea, being reformed, being reshaped by the scriptures. Everything that you do, you want to do it in terms of God's word. All callings, therefore, uh, in life became important. So whereas previously, if one desired to be a servant of God, he had to retreat to a monastery, now he could be a servant of God in his own calling. Work became honorable and a way to glorify God rather than an unhappy necessity, which was uh, the dominant view in paganism. Further, this made the entire world important. You couldn't ignore it. It was all the purchased possession of Christ, and he deserved to be honored in every place, in every part of the globe. Now, this, you see, revolutionized men's views both of the state and uh, the church as well as the state, as well as their views of themselves. It was this preeminently which led to the rise of the Puritan movement and the struggles with the established church in England. Uh, this also gave rise to the desire to go to the new land where these principles might be applied without hindrance. So the majority of the English settlers who came in those early years were Puritans, even though they may not technically be Puritans in, in the sense of politically speaking. They often, even those who weren't Puritans, often thought like them and agreed with them on most things, so you wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. Historian uh, Sidney Alstrom states that Puritanism, provided the moral and religious background of fully 75% of those who declared their independence in 1776. Alstrom goes on to say that the influence of the Reformation, that when the influence of the Reformation is considered among those immigrants from Europe, 85 to 90% would not be an extravagant figure. 85 to 90% of the people who came to this country were influenced rather significantly by the Reformation and the teachings of the Reformation. That is an incredible uh, figure when you think of that. Lorraine Bettner, of course, the uh, uh, Presbyterian theologian and, and, uh, and historian, he said, it is estimated that of the 3 million Americans at the time of the American Revolution, 900,000 were of Scotch or Scotch-Irish origin, 600,000 were of Puritan English, 400,000 were German or Dutch Reformed, and in addition to this, the Episcopalians of Jamestown in Virginia had a Calvinistic confession, and their 39 articles and many French Huguenots, uh, in their 39 articles, and many French Huguenots also had come to this Western world. The Huguenots, of course, were the Calvinists in, that, in, in France, the Protestants in France. So you had this incredibly, incredible theological unity, even though they're culturally and, and, uh, and in, in their, in their uh, 
uh, national backgrounds, there was a great deal of diversity, yet there was, a, there was a theological unity in the early years of this country. The first English settlement in this country, remember, was in Jamestown. In the year, in the spring of 1606, King James of England granted a charter to the Virginia Company of London, which gave the company rights to settle, explore, and govern a strip of land 240 miles wide, extending from the southern boundary of what is now Maryland to Cape Fear, North Carolina. On December 20th of that same year, an expedition of about 105 men sailed from London on three ships, the Godspeed, the Discovery, and the Susan Constant. They landed on a peninsula 30 miles up the James River on May the 4th, 1607, May the 14th, 1607. Uh, you have probably heard of the story of Jamestown, the loss of life, the Jamestown colony in the first two decades of its existence it, because of disease and Indian attack. It, it almost defies imagination. Uh, out of the 7,289 colonists that came to Jamestown in those first two, uh, first 20 years, 6,040 died. That's six out of seven. Six out of seven people died. It is often said that the Jamestown settlement was for the purposes of economic gain, while the Massachusetts colony was founded for the glory of God. Uh, neither one of those statements is completely true. There were economic motives in Massachusetts, and there were spiritual motives in the Virginia colony. What is often not noted, however, that uh, uh, that the biblical motives of the of the men and women of Jamestown is often overlooked, and I want to emphasize that for a moment. Dr. Thomas Hall, in his book, The Religious Background of American Culture, makes this statement. He says, substantially the same motives backed both Virginia and Massachusetts. The same motives, he said, substantially. And Carl Breidenbaugh uh, also makes a, a statement along these lines. He says, the men who inhabit, who established and managed the London Company, that's the company that, uh, that came, uh, in, that followed into, into Virginia, were to be sure conforming Anglicans, but nothing is more evident in their writings than a strong Puritan bent. Though Virginia could not be described as Puritan politically, as Massachusetts could have been, its inhabitants would certainly be described as Puritan theologically. They were thoroughly Calvinistic in their views of God and man, as well as salvation and life. As a result, the Church of England, as it was in Virginia and in this country in general, by the way, uh, was not of the highly Anglo-Roman type found in England. Uh, it was distinctly more Protestant in its convictions and in its practice. Dr. Hall, who is a who is a very staunch high church English uh, Anglican, makes this statement. Uh, he says, nearly all that has given the Anglo-Catholic type its hold over the ruling class mind in England seems singularly lacking in the colonial state church. The church buildings were seemingly as bare as in New England and the services as depressing. These aesthetic values that still make a powerful appeal in England today were quite as neglected as in New, as in New England. In other words, in Virginia, they did not. They were very low church Anglicans. They didn't go in for all the things that were that were a matter of course in England. In England, <laughs> England. Oh, that's how we pronounce it. <laughs> Probably the correct way, even though I'm in it. All right. One of the leading clergymen in Virginia was uh, Anglican clergyman was was Alexander Whitaker. Now listen to this. Whitaker's father was the Regius Professor of Divinity at Cambridge and an avowed Presbyterian. 
He was an Anglican, his father's a Presbyterian. His cousin was one of the leading Puritans in London, William Googe, who wrote a big, huge, fat commentary on Hebrews, one of the great Puritans. And so Whitaker, who now is the son of a staunch Presbyterian and the, and the, and the, uh, and the cousin of a great Puritan, comes over to this country, organizes his church, and he organized it as an Anglican along the Presbyterian plan. We said, we see, discorded, he discarded the surplus and emphasized preaching and teaching rather than the emphasis that is placed upon the liturgical and sacramental in the Church of England. Uh, so you see, basically, he was perform, he was, he was an Anglican who, if you had seen him, or at least people of that day had seen him, they would have thought he was a Puritan. He acted like a Protestant, a, a, a more, a, a more, uh, he was more Puritan in his convictions. Historian Ernest Trice Thompson has stated that of all, all the ministers brought to the colony, that is to Virginia, before 1624, under the auspices of the Virginia Company, were apparently Puritan in their sympathies. And I think that's true. And that's why the Anglican Church in this country had, uh, even though many, many men who came over later were loyalists, the congregations were not, by and large. The state of the Episcopal Church in Virginia and elsewhere has often been blamed on the fact that there was no American bishop ever appointed. In reality, the Protestantized state of the church in Virginia was more due to the convictions of the early ministers and the population in general, uh, rather than the official leadership in England, uh, or the leadership, any leadership they might have had over here in particular. Though the citizens of Virginia supported the establishment of the Church of England, as many as 50% of the population of Virginia were dissenters, as they were not part of the established church. These made up the most serious part of the population. They had been reared under puritanical theology and morals, and not only were willing, but very eager to submit to the moral regulations that have traditionally been thought of as, as exclusively uh, inhabiting Massachusetts and New England, the New England Puritan morals. And this is reflected in the laws adopted by the colony of Virginia. The first law code for the colony of Virginia was entitled Articles, Laws, and Order, Divine, Politic, and Martial for the Colony of Virginia. It was adopted in 1610. And it lays down laws that are very, very similar to what you see later, later on in Massachusetts under the uh, Massachusetts Body of Liberties, for example. This document opens with these words. Listen to this. Since we owe our highest and supreme duty, our greatest and all our allegiance to him from whom all power and authority is derived and flows as from the first and only fountain, and being a special soldiers impressed in this sacred cause, we must alone expect our success from him who is the only blesser of all good attempts, the King of Kings, the Commander of Commanders, and the Lord of Hosts. All officers and captains are, are, are strictly commanded um, no matter what quality and nature they are, whether commanders in the field or in the town or in the fortresses, to have care that Almighty God be duly and daily served and that they call upon their people to hear sermons as that also they diligently frequent morning and evening prayers themselves by their own exemplar and daily life and duties herein, encouraging others thereto, thereunto. And that such who shall often and willfully absent themselves be duly punished according to the martial law in that case provided. So you see, there's a very strict idea. We, uh, the idea of Jamestown and Virginia was we're, we're a Christian colony, and we want the people in this country, in this colony, to be faithful, obedient people. The laws included prohibition on, on uh, impious speech and blasphemy, 
ministers were officially protected from abuse, which I, I think is just eminently wise. Uh, <laughs> uh, public worship was required of all the citizens. Sodomy, adultery, fornication were all punishable. Even the Indians were protected against mistreatment. Again, one of the slanders on the early colonists was that they were very inconsiderate of the Indians. Well, some, you know, you always have bad eggs no matter where you buy them. And um, there were bad eggs uh, in in the country, and and, um, that's always the case. But by and large, that was not true. The Indians were not mistreated, and there was a a serious effort uh, to treat them just in many, many cases. Well... Uh, the second group of, of Puritans to come over was in November 11th, 1620. This group of Puritans unfortunately landed at Cape Cod in New England. Uh, to their credit, they actually wanted to go to Virginia. And they always blamed the ship captain for their misfortune <laughs> of, landing, of landing there. Okay, part of this is a joke. Now, I didn't... Uh, don't want you to get surly on me. <laughs> Partly joking. Um, this group was made up of 102 men and women and children and had been a portion of the congregation in Leiden uh, in the Netherlands under the direction of Pastor John Robinson and ruler and ruling elder William Brewster. They were among a group of five to 600 Puritans who had fled England for Holland in the 1608. These were the separatists, uh, the men basically, who gave up on reformation in the Church of England. They basically said, the Church of England is unreformable. The only thing we can do now is separate from it and get out of it and not be polluted by it. And so uh, they believed that the Church of England couldn't be reformed. Therefore, the only course for them was just to get away from it. And so they moved uh, to Holland in mass. And uh, they are distinguished then from the Puritans who had not given up on the possibility of seeing Reformation within the Church of England. That's the difference. The Puritans were called Puritans because they were seeking to purify the Church of England, to reform it. The pilgrims or the separatists were called that because they decided they gave up on Reformation. They left the Church of England and separated themselves from it. And these people um, took upon themselves the name pilgrims uh, because they said, we are but strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Though their years in Leyden were uh, were happy years, uh, it was not long before they believed they had to leave. And among the chief of their reasons for leaving was the fact that the Dutch, to their uh, understanding, had very little regard for the Sabbath. And they were concerned over the long term about the influence this might have on their children. And so they were concerned about, really, they, they were happy themselves and really rather prosperous. But because of the concern they had for their children, they decided they needed to leave. And so they set out for America. Now, you've heard of the many trials of these brethren, and, and I will not rehearse them here, except to know for our purposes, once again, you have a group of people coming to this country who are solidly committed to biblical theology, thoroughly committed to what is called by its nickname Calvinism. Then you have, of course, the third group of Puritans to come over, which would be the Puritans of Massachusetts Bay. On September 6, 1628, another group of earnest Puritans arrived on on board the ship Abigail. A party of about 40 people sailed from Weymouth, England on June 20th and arrived in Salem, or at that time it was called Nom Keg, uh, in Massachusetts. Again, this group came for the purpose of, they said, furthering the kingdom of God. 
John Winthrop, who was the first governor, recorded their reasons for coming to the new world. And again, you hear echoes of the reformational thought in this. Listen to what he said. Among the reasons were these. Uh, first, the evangelism of the world. Secondly, the present judgment upon the Church of England and Europe as a whole. Thirdly, the spiritual condition of England as it was reflected particularly in the corruption of, of the schools and colleges. They were afraid about having their children go to the schools that were in England and the colleges in England. And then uh, as, uh, another one was the whole earth is the Lord's and he should receive glory from every part of it. That is a distinctly reformational type thought, biblical thought. Over 1,000 Puritans came to, uh, in from England in 1630. All total between 1620 and 1640, over 15,000 uh, Puritans came to this country. Not all of them came for the same reasons, of course. Mather, Cotton Mather, notes that there were other settlements in the northern parts of New England, but he says their purpose was not the same, not, they did not have as their goal the same holy end, and therefore a constant series of disasters confounded them, he said. Nothing really came of those settlements. They, they primarily were attacked by Indians and wiped out. But though we cannot say that all came for that same holy reason, we can say that the vast majority did. It was, according to Cotton Mather, it was as if the God of heaven served a summons upon the spirits of the people in the English nation, stirring up the spirits of thousands which never saw the faces of each other and with the most unanimous inclination to leave all the pleasant accommodations of their native country and go over a terrible ocean into a more terrible desert for the pure enjoyment of all his ordinances. Well, thousands came over with the dream of establishing a new Israel, which would be faithful to God, unlike the old Israel, and, and which had been destroyed because of unbelief. They desired, as you know, to be a city set on a hill, a light to all the nations, and we have to say that the mark left by this small band of faithful men and women in Jamestown and in Plymouth and in Massachusetts Bay is still felt in this nation in some measure. Well, what were the theological presuppositions of this group of people? It's quite common to hear it said that our fathers came over here to escape religious tyranny. And sometimes it's even said that they they came to get away from religion. I actually heard that said one time. And, and in a book I saw a few years back, they said that uh, this was in the book that was used to teach real children. Um, the Pilgrims and Puritans, this is a quote. The Pilgrims and Puritans came to America so that they could live in any way they pleased and do what they wanted. Now, that's some incisive historical judgment there for you, I guess. Uh, now, you see... That kind of statement now is being made. Uh, you, you probably heard it in one of the books that uh, uh, the Gablers, uh, the, uh, Mel, Mel Gabler and his wife found. Uh, they, they review public school textbooks all the time. It's a, it's a miserable living, but somebody has to do it. Um, so they were reading one, and they actually found a statement that said the, the pilgrims, uh, the first Thanksgiving was for the purpose of the pilgrims thanking the Indians. Well, it was thanks, uh, you know, close enough. Okay. And uh, that, at best, is only partially true. It is true. That was one of the things. They did desire freedom of conscience, to worship God, to have churches formed according to what they understood the, the Bible required. That was true. But that's by no means all they desired. Their vision was much larger and broader and deeper than that. 
And thus, when it became apparent that England was going to fight reform, many of the Puritans left to seek to establish what they call the crown rights of King Jesus in a foreign land. They preferred, they said, a wilderness governed by Puritans to a civilized land governed by Charles I. The central theme of the Reformation, sola scriptura, drove them to seek reformation in all areas of life. Christ was Lord of all, and thus all things must be conformed to his word. The crown rights of King Jesus demanded a reformed society. There was there were a number of important theological truths that formed the framework of their thinking. Let me just go over them a few of them briefly for you. The first one was the covenant of God. The covenant is a living relationship with God, governed in terms of his own word, that God, in fact, voluntarily comes to us, enters into this relationship with us, and pledges himself to be our God and requires us to be his people. The covenant reflects God's nature, you see, uh, of one and many. It gives a unity without destroying legitimate and lawful diversity. Just as God is one in many, he is one God in three persons. A triune triune God teaches you that the one in the many find that the resolution of that great ancient problem is found in God himself. The Trinity shows you that resolution. It's in God, and his covenant expresses that, that we are all one people by our union through Christ, and yet we are not wiped, our individuality is not wiped out. In fact, we become all the more what God wants us to be by virtue of our union with one another. So we are one people with many, one body with many members, as Paul puts it. The one and the many, the unity and diversity uh, preserved. That's something that the ancient uh, pagan cultures never could come to grips with. They never could get it. You either had... Uh, you either had individualism predominant or or unity brought brought about usually through the state as predominant only in christianity can you have uh, freedom and and form unity and diversity preserved the covenant therefore was a dominant idea in the minds of the puritans that's not to say as i think we will hear that's not to say that they understood it altogether thoroughly and accurately at every point. But it was a dominant idea in their minds. God in mercy entering into a living relationship with us through Christ. This relationship then was governed by his word, and we were obligated to to be faithful to that word. The covenant reality had a molding influence on what they did. They viewed the success of their endeavor as dependent upon the faithfulness of each individual person. And this idea bound them together. Each individual viewed himself as personally responsible for the success or failure of the entire venture. That's a very important point that we in our day have lost. And I hope that one of the things that we will begin doing as a people of God, as the church, is recovering this idea of covenant. It's essential for for faithful society. The second great truth was the absolute sovereignty of God. God is the sovereign Lord over all things. Every aspect of life is to be governed by his word, whether it be family, the church, or the state. You as an individual, obviously, are to be governed by that word. So God is the king over all things, over all of his creation. He's the king over all of his creatures. He's the king over every institution, whether it be family, church, or state. The church is answerable to God and to God alone and must therefore follow his word in its worship and work. The, the family, of course, is, is under the, the Lord's authority as well. The husband is the head of the wife, 
And both he and his wife are God's representatives to the children. They stand as covenant heads over their children. The authority of the man was limited by God's word, and thus he cannot be a tyrant over his wife or his children. But his God-ordained authority ought to be exercised according to God's word, and he will be held accountable by God for exercising it properly. So this had far-reaching. This has far-reaching effects. You see, if you if you grow up with that kind of view of your obligation in the family and in the church, it's going to have ramifications in your view of the state or the civil realm, the civil magistrate. Uh, Greg Singer, great uh, pre- uh, historian, has said this. He said it was the sovereign God who created the state. This was the view now the Puritans he's describing. The sovereign God created the state and gave to it its powers and functions. The earthly magistrate held his position and exercised his power by a divine decree. He was a minister of God under common grace for the execution of the laws of God among the people at large, for the maintenance of law and order, and for so ruling the state that it would provide an atmosphere favorable for the preaching of the gospel. He was so to rule that the people of God, the elect, could live individually and collectively a life that was truly Christian. And you see, that was the Puritan political theory in a nutshell. The magistrate gets his powers from God. He's a minister of God. He's obligated to God. He gets his powers from God, not from the people. Power comes from above, not from below. His power didn't come from the people. He was primarily responsible to God, not to the people. It must never be forgotten, you see, that the voters and the magistrates were to look to the scriptures as a guide for the general conduct of their government. The rulers and the people were thus subject to the revealed will of God, and the will of the people could never take precedence over the divinely ordained powers and functions of human government. The will of the people was not ultimate. T.H. Breen, historian, says the rulers of New England saw themselves as the keepers of the Lord's covenant, citing Moses as their political ideal. And so as a result, the most important qualification for political leader was biblical faith. The Puritans placed greater weight on a man's spiritual condition and on his personal life than anything else. It didn't, you know, there were no professional politicians, thanks be to God, in those days. You were a normal human being, and if you were accomplished and godly, then you might be chosen to perform that task. But the most important qualification was not political sagacity or how you looked on TV or anything else. The most important thing was what you believed and how you lived. And that was the thing that got determined. Of course, they're following the Bible at that point. So John Cotton, one of the great preachers in Massachusetts and Boston, said, The rulers ought to be men so well acquainted with the matters of religion as to discern the fundamental principles of godly rule. Since God is sovereign, you see, he is the one who not only calls magistrates and raises them up, but he determines the form of government. The form of civil government was not to be patterned after anything but the scriptures alone. And most importantly, if God is sovereign, the state, the government, cannot be religiously neutral. God is the king, and if God is king, no neutrality is possible. And to pretend to be neutral is rebellion. You're either submitting to the king or you're rebelling against him. It's one or the other. If God is king, you're either doing what he says or you're not. And it is impossible to be neutral. The man who is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And so political neutrality 
the great uh, modern doctrine, was not tolerated by the Puritans. And that leads me to the third great truth, which is the total depravity of man. God enters into covenant with sinful man. Man was not only to be viewed as one created after the image of God and accountable to him, but he was also a sinful creature, totally unable in and of himself to do the will of God. In fact, man is a rebel against God's purposes. And apart from God's grace, no man will ever submit to God's word or to love his creator or his fellow man. And you see, this influence, not only their preaching, Obviously, it would. That, that kind of preaching was uh, that those truths would be, of course, proclaimed in their preaching. And it would it would influence their understanding of the nature of salvation. Salvation has to be by grace alone if this is true of man. But this also what I want to emphasize is that this also influenced their view of society and the structure of society. Man's depravity, for example, makes the family absolutely necessary. Men need discipline and training and the training of the home if they are to ever live in society to the profit of their fellows. They must learn to respect authority, and you learn to respect God-ordained authority in the home first. Depravity makes education, therefore, necessary. Because of sin, man is ignorant and will never come to a knowledge of the truth on his own. He must be taught. Christian education is not a luxury. It's an absolute necessity. But because man is sinful, education is not enough. Education does not save. It does not sanctify. Only the grace of God does. You see, if you have an understanding of, of, of uh, what the Bible teaches about man's nature, you're, you're immune to these modern heresies that call you to trust in something else for salvation other than Christ. Man's depravity makes the church necessary. We need to learn God's word, to be held accountable, to follow that word, and to learn to worship him. And apart from the ministry of God's people, no man can become what he ought to be in God's sight. But thirdly, man's depravity makes the civil government necessary. Sinners left to themselves will not respect the rights of others. Society is impossible without some form of civil government to enforce the laws for the protection of all. But this government must be strictly limited in its authority because the only people you can get to serve are going to be fellow sinners. Uh, Madison said if we could have angels for our magistrates, we wouldn't have to worry. But there are no angels running. So we have to choose, we, when we choose men, if men must be chosen to serve in these offices, then we must strictly limit their authority. Sinful man cannot be trusted with unlimited authority. All men must have their authority. Again, let me quote John Cotton. He said, let all the world learn to give mortal man no greater power than they are content that he should use, for use it he will. A great lesson to remember. All the laws of the state then have to take into account the reality of man's nature. Man is not basically good. He is basically sinful. And if that's true, then the policies you adopt, political, social, economic, will be drastically different than those you would adopt if man was basically good. See, there is the basic problem with our modern laws and policies. They, they are based upon a faulty view of man. You, all you have to do is think of urban renewal and welfare and the prison system, to name three, and you, you see that those things are founded upon a heretical view of man's nature. They think, for example, the problem, you see, if, if you're sinful, your problem is within. If I'm basically good, then why am I a bad guy? It's not because of something within. It must be you. It's your fault that I'm not. Or it's my house's fault, or it's my income, or it's my food, or something. It's, it's not me. It's, what, it's the thing around me. So the, what's the answer to the problems that we're facing? 
restructuring society. Not, re, not regeneration of man, but the re, restructuring of his environment. It's the old pagan idea, salvation by a new environment, you see. Same thing. Heresy gets you into all kinds of trouble. The fourth great truth was the preeminence of the law of God. Since God is king, all areas of life must be ruled by his law. The word of God is the supreme rule of faith in life. So the family is not to be ruled by tradition or the whims of the father or the mother, but by God's word. The church is to worship according to that word and to spend, spend its energies teaching and preaching this word so that the world might be trained and taught and know this word. And it's because of this emphasis upon the word of God, you see, that the Puritans opposed all forms of theological and political antinomianism. Antinomianism means anti-law, against the law. This is why they despised democracy. Now, to our in, our, in modern ears, that sounds like a heresy that somebody would say that in public. But the fact is, democracy, the rule of the people, the voice of the people ruling, majority rule, is unbiblical. John Cotton said, I do not conceive that God ever did ordain democracy as a fit government for either the church or the commonwealth. The founders would say later on, democracy is the devil's own government. In other words, if the majority, if you can call something good by majority vote, what you have there is the voice of the people becoming equivalent to the voice of God. You see? So that if we can say, 51% of the people can make killing a baby in the mother's womb legal, and it's not wrong, then we have just allowed the people to take the place of God. Democracy is the devil's own government, they said. It's taking away from the word of God. The voice of God no longer rules. It's the voice of man that rules. That's the devil's government. Now, in space, in what, what, what did they say? In the, if it's not democracy, then what? Well, they said theocracy is the answer. Now. I under, you've heard the word theocracy used in, re, in regard to the fanatic uh, people in the uh, uh, Near East who wear funny hats and all the rest and talk funny. Uh, they don't understand really what a, a biblical theocracy is. The Puritans did. John Cotton wrote that a theocracy is the best form of government. And he defined theocracy in this way. He said, theocracy is having the Lord God as our governor and where the laws by which men rule are the laws of God. You see, what he, as he understood it, and he understood it properly, theocracy is not a structure where the, where the church rules over the state, which is the way that term is used now to refer, when you hear about Ayatollah and, and Khomeini and Hinani and all the others over there, they think that's the church ruling over the state. Well, it is, that, but that's not, technically that's not a theocracy, nor is it where the church and state are merged. That's not a theocracy. A theocracy means God rules. God rules. And that's a biblical government, you see. David was king, but he was under God. He understood he was under the king of kings and that God's word had to be the thing that he followed. And that's what, uh, that's the way the Puritans understood theocracy. And that's why the, that, that meant that the state as well as the church and all men and all people in every area of life are ruled by God and his word. That's theocracy. The fifth great truth that moved the Puritans was the necessity of redemption by God's grace. Man, the sinner, needs not only a government to, of law to restrain him, but stands in need of redeeming grace to save him. 
Only sovereign grace is sufficient to save a man and make him a profitable member of society and a blessing to those around him. The Puritans, you see, never expected their political views or educational institutions or social and economic ideas to usurp the place of the gospel. They never thought that salvation could be found in laws or in social activity or in man-made institutions. They understood that salvation comes from the gospel alone, from God alone. John Winthrop would remind his fellow citizens of Massachusetts that a doctrine of civil rights, which looked to natural or sinful man as the source and guardian of those rights, was destructive of the very liberty which they were seeking to protect. He says true freedom can never be found in institutions which are under the direction of sinful men, but only in the redemption wrought for man by Jesus Christ. Christ, not man, is the sole source and guarantee of true liberty. Amen. That's the truth, and that's what the Puritans taught. And the sixth truth was the truth of postmillennialism. Now, this, of course, would sound strange to most uh, in our day in the, in the modern church, but postmillennialism is the belief that before Christ returns, there shall be a great revival of Christianity and that the vast majority of the world will be saved. And, and this faith became pervasive in 17th century Christendom. According to Ernest Lee Tuveson, uh, a, a historian at the University of Chicago, he said, in the 17th century, a revolution in thinking about eschatology had already begun. The idea that God predicted the defeat of evil before the conflagration, that is, before the end, and is redeeming that promise began to be taken seriously throughout the English-speaking world of Protestantism. So there was this idea that God was going to defeat evil in time, in history, not with the second coming of Christ, but before that second coming, evil would be defeated through the preaching of the gospel. Now, this view gave the Puritans two things that are desperately lacking in modern Christendom, patience and confidence. What we most lack, they had, and I think they had it in part because of this particular view of eschatology. We, You see, we view, if we can't see something accomplished in our lifetimes, then it's not worth trying. We don't have any patience uh, for long-term reformational-type work, generational Reformational type work. We don't have patience. If we're not going to see it, we will never build, build a cathedral. You see, <laughs> a tent is a lot quicker. You get it up, you're done. You know. So we build cheap buildings that'll be blown away. Uh, but you see, cathedral building takes long term confidence and patience, and the Puritans had it, and the uh, so many many in the Middle Ages, of course. Obviously, I'm saying they also had it as well. But this idea that if we don't see it in our lifetime, it's not worth doing. And then the other thing that we also have alongside of this impatience is a lack of confidence. We don't have any confidence that God will bless our efforts. And indeed, we have a great confidence that he won't. And so that all of our efforts, you know, you have to do it. It's your duty, but don't expect anything. That's the attitude of the modern church. We see the Puritans had different views altogether. They had a great desire to see the world converted together with the confidence that God would, uh, that God had actually promised that and would bless their efforts in their preaching, not necessarily in their lifetimes, but they thought that, th that what they were doing was significant. It would add to this cumulative victory of the gospel. They were a covenanted people who had entered into a solemn covenant with God to form a nation that honored him. They had, according to Cotton Mather, 
and Aaron in the wilderness, and that was to establish a mission station from which would sound forth the gospel to all the ends of the earth. America was to be the city set on a hill, displaying the glories of a nation which was ruled by the living God. They would be a living model, they thought, of what all nations would one day become. And this faith changed their whole view of the world. The world was not a condemned wreck from which individual souls must escape, but rather it was the property of Christ, to whose kingdom the earth and the fullness thereof must belong. The Puritan hope was revived during that uh, it, it declined, as, as Pastor Wilson will tell us. Then it was revived in the great awakening of the next century in some measure. And it was the faith that stirred the fires of independence. Dr. R.J. Rushduni states that the war of independence would never have happened apart from this view of postmillennialism. Interesting thought. He says, apart from this, people would have submitted to tyranny. Why would a small band of patriotic colonialists oppose the greatest and most powerful military force in the world when they had, to all human ways of thinking, no chance? No chance. How could you defeat Britain? That was the greatest power in the world. Ragtag bunch of guys who shoot squirrel. I mean, you can shoot squirrel, but man, we're talking about the great army. Well, again, they, they believed that they were on a mission that would be blessed and they had confidence in him and they had, and they would not submit to tyranny if that meant enslaving their posterity. And so you see, these, these are the truths which molded our nation at, at its beginnings, the covenant, the sovereignty of God, the depravity of man, the preeminence of the law of God, redemption by the grace of God and victory of the gospel of God. And these, I would suggest, are the foundations of liberty. If we are ever to enjoy a fresh supply of God's blessing, it will come as a result of embracing these same truths again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for the great example that many of those who came over in the 17th century give us. We, we thank you for their courage, their faith, their patience, their willingness to suffer their willingness to seek to glorify you no matter what the cost. Heavenly Father, when we think of those men and women, we, we cannot help but be put to shame by our own selfishness and love of comfort and ease and our own desire not to lose anything for the sake of Christ. We, we beg that you will forgive us for our self-centeredness and our unwillingness to serve you in many, many ways. But Lord, look upon us with favor and forgive our sins and stir us up and stir up in us these same things, this same faith that drove those men and women to give everything that they had and owned for your glory. Help us to be another generation who will live faithfully for you. For Jesus' sake, we ask you. Amen. If you enjoyed this talk, be sure to check out the full series, A History of Calvinism in America with lectures by Steve Wilkins and Douglas Wilson, now available on Canon Plus.